Thanks. Um, yeah, so this talk is meant to give a sort of basic overview of some of the concepts in theoretical population ethics and then explore a particular debate there and ask at the end how important that theoretical debate is for practical um, population ethics. Um, I'm a junior research fellow at St. Anne's College, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm a philosopher, so fairly on the, on the theoretical side. Um, so I'll start by saying what theoretical population ethics is and give you a few examples. Um, by population ethics, I'm mainly referring to what philosophers call population axiology. And this specific branch of population ethics has to do with uh, the betterness of outcomes um, rather than the other main branch of population ethics, which has to do with procreative rights and liberties and things like that. I'll spend a good deal of the talk walking you through the theoretical debate between two different approaches to valuing population, the average view and the total view. Um, and then I'll turn to some practical contexts in which it matters whether we adopt an average view or a total view. And then finally, I'll explain how the cost of having the wrong theory could be very high. So what is theoretical population ethics? It's a rigorous investigation into the merits of competing theories about what makes different possible outcomes better than others, while focusing on the well-being of the people in these different outcomes. These outcomes may vary in terms of number, so the outcomes may contain different numbers of people, and they can also differ in terms of quality of life. That is, the people in these outcomes may be at different levels of well-being or quality of life. You might wonder, why does this, why does this even matter? Why should, why should we care about this area? I, the way I approach it is um, we have limited resources and limited resources make for tough decisions. So should we spend our $1 billion, for example, on deworming pills or fighting malaria or combating climate change? And surely one thing we want to know in answering these questions um, is whether we'd be making the outcome better if we spent our money in these various ways. Not just whether we'd make the outcome better if we spent our money in these various ways, but how much, by what degree, we'd make the outcome better if we spent our $1 billion on deworming or malaria or climate change. And one thing that's, that seems relevant to evaluating outcomes is how people are faring in those outcomes. Are they happy? Are they miserable? Maybe it's true that the well-being of the people in various outcomes isn't the only thing that's relevant to the assessment of those outcomes, but surely it's one thing that is relevant. And it's useful, it's useful to focus on that dimension of evaluation in the first instance. Um, and I think, for the most part, we can approach the main questions of population ethics or population axiology while remaining fairly neutral about what well-being itself consists in, whether it's pleasure, happiness, or desire satisfaction, and so on. I think we can ask all the questions we want to ask regardless of what well-being itself consists in. So here's the first case. Um, let's assume that the width of these rectangles represents the number of people in two different outcomes. So there's outcome A and outcome B, and the height of the rectangles represents the average well-being or quality of life of the people in A and B. Um, if we like, we can suppose that everyone in A is equally well-off and everyone in B is equally well-off. We can assume that just to make things extra simple. Um, in this particular diagram, 
uh, everybody, uh, there's the exact same number of people in A as there is in B. We could suppose that they each contain one billion people. The average uh, quality of life in B, of course, is much lower than it is in A. Um, we can suppose that uh, the A people and the B people are the same, or we could suppose that they're not. I think that either way, whether we're assuming that the A people and the B people are the same, it seems fairly clear that A is better than B. Um, indeed, this, is a, this should be a no-brainer, um, and sort of like a test of your concept of better for, uh, you know, the betterness relation between different outcomes. Um, if you understand what that means, you should be <laughs> judging that A is better than B. Um, at least as long as we're clear that, you know, what's relevant to these outcomes is how well off people are. Um, and we've been given this information about how well off people are and the number of people. It seems very plausible that A is better than B. B is worse than A, both in terms of average well-being and in terms of total well-being, where the total well-being is represented by the area of this rectangle, the height times the width, the average quality of life, multiplied by the number of people. Here's a slightly harder case. <laughs> um, which, one, which outcome is better here? Here the average is the same between A and B, but there are many more people in B than there are in A. So B has a much greater total well-being than A. Now one natural question to ask here is just, look, if you've added all these extra people in B, wouldn't you be making the world uh, more crowded, there'd be a drain on resources and so on, and wouldn't this decrease quality of life? making the average uh, lower. So why isn't the average in B lower? Well, the thought is just that in this example, I've stipulated that the B people, in fact, um, they, they would be just as well off as the A people, despite this increase in population size. So we could tell different stories about how that's so. Um, perhaps the numbers are small enough in these cases that there isn't a crowding issue just yet, or perhaps um, the benefits to people of increased population, like some of the ones Toby mentioned, would offset any costs involved with uh, crowding. So given that the B people and the A people have the same quality, which is better, A or B? In response to this question, I, I personally find it plausible that B is better than A, um, though it is somewhat philosophically controversial whether simply increasing population size per se is a good thing. I recognize that that's somewhat philosophically controversial, but my intuition here is that B is indeed better than A. What about this case? If we change the previous case into this one, the question does seem to me even easier. For now, both the average and the total have been increased. It seems fairly clear now that B is better than A. And I think we can make the claim that B is better than A even more irresistible um, and even, even less controversial if we assume that the way we get from B, get, get from A to B, is by taking the A people, making them all better off, represented by the left rectangle in the B outcome, and then just adding a bunch of additional people, um, the right rectangle in B. So when we're setting up this case, I'm assuming that the A people have lives that are worth living. Um, and that when you convert the situation to B, the A people's lives are even more worth living. Uh, and then, that, that is, the, the left rectangle people have lives that are even more worth living. And then you add another set of people at this same higher level. That just seems 
fairly clear that, that B is um, better. So uh, in this talk, though, I, I'll generally assume that the people in the outcomes under comparison are non-identical. That is, in general, the A people will not overlap with the B people. And even when there isn't this sort of overlap, still seems clear that, as in this case, um, B is better than A. Here's a somewhat harder case. In this case, there's a non-trivial difference in average well-being, with B coming out worse in this respect. On the other hand, B has significantly more total well-being than A does. So now we face a conflict between average well-being and total well-being. And it's an interesting question. Which factor should determine which outcome is better overall? So up to this point, I've been largely laying out some of the main concepts in this area, and like betterness and outcomes and um, average and total. Now I'm going to turn to um, an assessment of two rival views here. So the two most straightforward answers to the question, whether average matters or total matters, um, are the average view and the total view, respectively. Very um, obvious sounding titles, predictable titles for these views. So according to the average view, an outcome is better than another if it has more average well-being. And according to the total view, an outcome is better than another if it has more total well-being. In all of my examples, except for the most recent one, that is that one, um, the average view and the total view would come to the same overall conclusions about which outcome is better. Though they might differ to some extent on how much value or how much goodness each population has. In the most recent example, the average view and the total view do give different answers. And obviously enough, the average view says that A is better than B. And the total view says that B is better than A. Okay. So there's one objection you might raise to the average view. Um, sort of understood in a quick, intuitive, it looked at quickly, you might wonder, does the average view imply that it would be better if everyone except for the above average people died? Or would it be better, better if all the below average people simply uh, died? I think whether the view has this implication depends on how we understand average. So there's the instantaneous average, and then there's the all-time average. Um, on the instantaneous average view, the thought is that we look at the average today, um, and it could turn out that if everyone died, everyone except for um, you know, maybe one person who's just above the average, if they all died in their sleep, and then tomorrow it turned out that there's just this one person who was above the average, that would count as an improvement on um, this instantaneous average view. Um, but that seems pretty hard to accept. Um, I mean, think about what the implications for the NHS and the WHO would be if we accepted this um, instantaneous average view. Um, it seems to suggest that we shouldn't be concerned with extending the just below average lives and so on. Um, a more acceptable version of the average view is this all-time average view. Um, this view is concerned with the lifetime well-being scores of everyone who's ever existed and who will ever exist. Um, and the thought is that this view doesn't imply that it would be better if the below average people, that is the people with below average well-beings, 
um, died because typically if someone dies prematurely, they have a much lower lifetime well-being score than they otherwise would have had. And so if a lot of people die, that's going to necessarily bring the average down on this all-time average view. Um, so I think this all-time average view is clearly, clearly the more plausible option if it's between the instantaneous average view and the all-time average view. And in fact, when philosophers talk about the average view, they tend simply to assume the all-time average view. So when Derek Parfit and Gustav Rainius mentioned the average view. This is the sort of view that they have in mind. Um, so following in their footsteps, um, from here on out, when I talk about the average view, I'll just be um, referring to the all-time average view. Still, the all-time average view <laughs> faces some important objections. So here, suppose we take the A people and make them all better off. And then we add a bunch of people who are just below the average in A. So we can suppose that the people in the left rectangle are the same as the A people. And then the people in the right rectangle in B are added people. Um, and we can suppose that, look, the A people, they all have lives that are very well worth living. And when you transition to B, of course, their lives get better. But we should also keep in mind just how well off the B people are. So they all have lives that are very worth living too. It's just that they're below the average in A. So it's, maybe we should imagine that these, the, the right rectangle B people aren't feeling resentment toward the left rectangle B people for their being better off, or maybe their resentment is outweighed by other things, such that overall their lives are very positive. So it looks like, as long as the right-hand rectangle in B is long enough, is large enough, B's average would be lower than A's average. And then the average view would imply that A is better than B. But that seems fairly counterintuitive. Um, there, there are further counterintuitive implications of the average view um, involving negative well-being, but I won't get into those right now. Um, we could talk about those in the Q&A if you're interested. Um, one further problem is for the average view is called the Egyptology problem. And it's that the average view implies that it would be very important um, whether ancient Egyptians had very high well-being or very low well-being. Um, if they had very high well-being, then we'd be making the world a worse place um, if we created happy children who were uh, below this average. But that implication itself seems to me a little silly so does the implication that it's really important that we do research in Egyptology to find out um, just how well off people were in the past so that we can then decide now whether it's a good idea to add happy people. Um, it sort of seems irrelevant. Um, so I think this is a further difficulty for the average view, but I actually think that this difficulty here is more serious. Okay. So suppose then that we're moved by what I just said to reject the average view. Um, instead of the average view, we could accept the total view. Uh, unfortunately, it too faces some counterintuitive implications. The main one discussed in population axiology is called the repugnant conclusion. Um, the repugnant conclusion, I have it written up here, is that for any outcome containing at least 10 billion lives of a very high quality, um, there could exist an outcome with many, many more lives with very low but positive well-being that would be better than this, this first outcome. 
Um, so here's a diagram to represent this repugnant conclusion. The thought is that in A, we've got 10 billion very high-quality people, high-quality lives, and then um, in B, the lives are just barely worth living. But if this rectangle in B is long enough, the total well-being will be greater than the total well-being in A, and the total view will imply that B is better than A. But most of us, um, oh, I shouldn't say most, many of us think that no matter how big um, B is, A would nonetheless be better. And if we think that, then we're going to find the total view to be unacceptable. So where does this leave us? Well, we could go back to an average view. Um, I don't know of anyone who, um, after seeing the repugnant conclusion, has been pushed to then accept an average view because the problems facing the average view just seem really bad. <laughs> um, another possibility is we could stick with the total view. And there are plenty of people who do this in population axiology. Some of them argue that the intuition that the repugnant conclusion is absurd shouldn't be trusted because that intuition relies on imagining very large numbers of people, something that we're not very good at doing. Um, other defenders of the total view might agree that the fact that the total view implies the repugnant conclusion counts against the total view, but nonetheless say that, well, all the alternatives to the total view have even more devastating problems. So the total view is something like the least bad option of a bunch of bad options. Um, but then probably most people working in population axiology favor this third option, which is to look for alternatives to the average view and the total view. Um, two alternatives, there are many, <laughs> but just two. Um, one is a, what's called a variable value view, which very roughly um, embraces something like a total view for small population sizes and an average view for large population sizes. Another possibility is to accept a critical level view or critical level utilitarianism, which roughly says that, uh, which is roughly the total view, but says that added lives must be sufficiently um, good, must, must have a sufficiently high well-being level for their addition to make the outcome better. And we're lucky to have one of the fathers of the critical level view here uh, today, David. Um, so arguably, though, sorry, David, um, all these alternatives, including the critical level view, have counterintuitive implications also. And Gustav Arrhenius's book titled Population Ethics, forthcoming in Oxford University Press, um, outlines several impossibility theorems or proofs that show that a number of very plausible intuitions that people have about population axiology are inconsistent. Um, it's impossible to come up with um, an intuitive population axiology or an acceptable population axiology. But I think later David might have some objections to Gustav about this. Um, but assuming David's wrong, <laughs> um, where does this leave us? Well, um, I think it leaves us with the conclusion so far that population ethics is very difficult. I'll now quickly say why I think, in addition to being difficult, it might be incredibly important. So the theoretical debate in population ethics has implications, practical implications, for family planning, public health, public safety, resource conservation, climate change, and existential risk. In all six of these areas, what we do affects the number of people who will exist in the future, who will exist in the future, and the quality of life of people who will exist in the future. Family planning will have the effect of reducing population or size or slowing population growth anyway. Um, public health and public safety policies 
um, will affect future generations and their uh, quality of life. Fairly clearly, the same is true about resource conservation. If we do little or nothing about climate change um, or to mitigate these existential risks, um, then we need to know what the effects will likely be in terms of the quality of life and the number of people who will exist in the future. Um, so just really quickly, in addition to debates about average and total, there are interesting debates in theoretical population ethics concerning what are known as person-affecting views. And Toby mentioned this um, with, in exchange with Roger in the previous session. Um, so there are a variety of different such person-affecting views. But as Toby said, um, the intuitive idea behind them is that what matters is the well-being of people who exist. Um, on, these, on these views, we wouldn't be making the world a better place by adding happy people to it. Um, so the thought is, um, as Narvison put it, we care about making people happy, not making happy people. Um, even if um, you know, adding happy people increased total well-being or average well-being. Um, so these views have, uh, sorry, these areas, um, it, it matters what we say about person-affecting views and average and total for these different practical areas. Um, but I'd like to focus on the implications of the debate about average and total really quickly. Um, so here, um, <laughs> it might not be clear, but the right rectangle B is actually a little bit taller than A, it's just slightly. So here, both average and total would agree that B is better um, because average and total are better in B than A. Um, but it looks like um, that the degree to which B is better than A would be less on the average view than on the total view because there's just slightly more average in B than there is in A, but there's a lot more total well-being. So while they both agree, while both views would agree that it's better to go from A to B, they disagree on how important it is to go from A to B. Okay, so this strikes me as a potentially helpful way of thinking about climate change. Um, it's likely that if we do nothing about climate change, the, res the result will be a lower average quality of life and lower total well-being. But it's unclear which it'll be worse in terms of. Um, and the debate between average, the average view and the total view suggests that, well, it'd be very important then to figure out um, which would be worse in terms of average or total. And then once we did figure this out, it could turn out that um, the priority placed on mitigating climate change would vary significantly depending on whether the total view or the average view is correct or acceptable. Um, so this graph represents one way the average quality of life and population size might correspond. So the thought is that with really small populations, the quality of life would be low, but then as population size increases, quality of life will accordingly increase, but then as the population size continues to increase, quality of life will decrease and eventually, you know, it will get really bad um, further to the right. Um, this seems like a fruitful way of thinking about the disagreement between the average view and the total view in the context of things like uh, resource conservation. So the thought is that maybe due to resource constraints as the population gets larger and larger, the average quality of life will decrease. It's of course debatable at what point this decrease will kick in. Um, but the average view and the total view are going to disagree here about which outcome is better. The average view is going to say, choose the highest point. That's the left point um, on that curve. And the total view is going to say, choose the, the right point um, as you get the greatest product of average and quality or total by picking 
the right point. Um, but notice that while the average view and the total view disagree about which outcome is better here, um, there'd only be a little bit less average, only somewhat less average, if we picked um, the right point. But if we picked the left point, there'd be a lot less total. The cost in terms of average might not be as great, but the cost in terms of total might be very high. Maybe one, one thought about this is, as Toby said, if we, if we shower less <laughs> or eat less meat, um, that, that might be a sort of a cost in terms of quality of life. But maybe if we did those things, um, we could make the total much greater. There's one possibility of an even more extreme divergence between the average view and the total view, and this comes up in the context of what's known as existential risk. So existential risk is a type of global catastrophic risk that threatens the entire um, existence of humanity, threatens to destroy humanity or all sentient life. It's a risk that's imposed by these things I've listed, nuclear war, asteroids, pandemics, and maybe also climate change. It's an important question. Uh, how important is it to avoid these types of risks? And I think the average view and the total view are likely to give very different answers here. So it seems like um, you know, there will be a higher average quality of life in the future. And thus, if you know, all sentient life is destroyed, there will be a cost, a very big cost, in terms of the average, at least if we're using this all-time average. Um, but the cost in terms of total seems absolutely staggering. Um, if we consider the millions of generations of intelligent, sentient people who would exist if the catastrophe had not occurred. Um, so the figure might be so large, in fact, that the total view would imply that avoiding existential risk should be something like our number one priority. So the conclusion here is that while Theoretical population ethics is very difficult um, in the sense that it's very hard to find a view in population ethics that avoids counterintuitive implications. It's also an extremely important area. Um, it's relevant to a lot of practical contexts like the ones I mentioned, um, but then in some of those contexts it might matter an awful lot whether or not, say, the total view or the average view is true. Thank you.